Hello, uh, I'm Chris Creason, and welcome to the second in our series of podcasts on cybersecurity and insider threat. During this series, we're going to be explaining why cybercrime, ransomware, and insider threat pose possibly the biggest existential threat to businesses of this century, and why either unwittingly or sometimes deliberately your staff are contributing to your company's downfall and what you can do about it. Last week we heard about Pendragon, uh, the UK car dealer and their 60 million dollar ransomware attack but this week we're going to be talking about everyone's favourite topic, Covid, uh, how the pandemic has challenged everything we thought we knew about cybersecurity, and why your staff and your organisation are facing a greater threat than anything you've faced in your lifetime. By way of illustration, let's cast our minds back, if we may, to April 2020. Uh, the UK and Europe were in lockdown, uh, the US was not very far behind, and the world was pretty much wondering what next. Uh, but Zoom, the video conferencing platform, had seen a rise in daily traffic of over 500%, and its iPhone app had topped the download charts for weeks. But there was a dark secret. The company simply didn't have the security infrastructure to cope. Zoom was fine for large corporations with their own security, their own firewalls, their own demilitarized zones. But when every school, local council, and MP was on a Zoom call, we saw a terrifying rise in what became known as Zoom bombing, a loss of personal data, and security breaches. One observer commented, Zoom is not a vehicle for malware, it is malware. Now it's important to state that the Zoom organization has fixed all of these issues and is now a stable and secure platform. But for those brief few months in 2020, it was open season for cyber criminals. And most of it was a lot less visible than Zoom. And that situation continues to this day. I'm here today with Mark Rothwell-Brooks, CEO of the Impact Team, and Mark Rodbert, CEO of IDAC Software, to talk about the pandemic, the world hacking situation, and what companies can do to protect themselves. If I could turn to you first, Mark Rodbert, uh, how did the pandemic change pretty much everything from a cyber and insider threat perspective? So we're now three years into the pandemic, and I think we can all agree that the world has changed utterly during that time. Um, clearly, economic changes uh, have happened, and that's increased the uh, the ability of cyber criminals and the attractiveness of cyber crime as an industry. Uh, but also, the workplace has changed completely. Uh, we're now seeing working from home as being uh, the norm, at least in part, if not totally, for, for, for most people. Um, and I think that's had a substantial change. If we cast ourselves back to the beginning of 2022, um, the initial that initial six months when uh, Britain was in lockdown, the US was, was uh, not far behind that, um, and a lot of companies had to get uh, their remote working capability up and running very, very quickly. I think particularly if you work in kind of well-established industries like uh, finance, it, it's easy to forget that 
majority of industries in in uh, the Western world actually didn't really have a remote working capability. Um, one of our clients actually had a um, no work outside of the office policy, uh, which, which clearly uh, was fine right up until uh, uh, until the advent of COVID. Uh, I think also it's worthwhile just distinguishing between um, remote working and bring your own device, because it was both of those things together that created um, uh, that created additional risks. So remote working, where the ability to use corporate or other devices to access uh, uh, from outside the office and access the office, uh, but bring your own device where you can actually use your own personal devices uh, with often significantly lower security levels. Um, uh, to access uh, work and, and the corporate environment. And, and I think it was the combination of those two things that increased the vulnerability. And, and just to give you an idea, um, in 2019, the average time to deploy uh, remote working solutions was 454 days. In 2020, that was cut to 11 days. So that's the average time to implement uh, remote working solutions. And my fear is that in the intervening three years, uh, the shortcuts that were taken in 2020 have not really been re revisited and remediated. We've seen a seven times uh, increase in ransomware in, in 2022 compared to 2019 and, and a 300% increase since 2020. So clearly, there's a, a mixture or, or a perfect intersection of uh, opportunity and capability uh, that has enabled uh, this rise in cybercrime. So that gives us um, a very interesting view of the context uh, in, in which people are working. Uh, but what it doesn't address is perhaps the behaviours uh, of those workers. Uh, Mark Rothwell Brooks, uh, you've done a lot of work around organisational change. How have employees' behaviours changed um, as a result of this, this change in context to the workplace? And if you could also perhaps elaborate on that, it's a term that I've heard bandied about that I don't really have a clear uh, definition for, and that's shadow IT. So could you tell us a little bit about employer behaviour and this shadow IT concept? Sure. Firstly, the, the behavioural change. So... I talked, I mentioned in the last podcast, this, this concept of the perimeter and a lot of investment in uh, mitigating the perceived cyber threat has been focused on, on, on securing the perimeter, stopping the bad guys getting in. Since COVID, what has happened is that obviously people are working from home a lot more um, and those soft cues that uh, employees were used to receiving be that you know the turnstile you know going through security perhaps having your bag scanned if you're entering the building you know being with your colleagues going to the water cooler and seeing the poster of the hooded hacker um you know and subconsciously making you aware that you know you should be aware of of those risks all of those are gone you're sat in your office at home if you have one or on your kitchen table and, and those soft cues are just not 
are far less prominent now when the majority of your workforce is not going through what has been um, perceived as, as, as that perimeter securing the environment. None of that's there. What has happened is that increasingly people work in, in smaller groups of individuals. You're no longer exposed to a wider community of, of, of employees because typically in your job, you, you interact with the usual suspects. Um, and, and that, uh, along with the fact that those soft cues are not available, engenders a, a level of, okay, yeah, but it's, it's, only, it's only Chris. You know, I've been working, I work with him really closely. Your guard is, is dropped somewhat. So shadow IT as a term refers to the range of devices and applications that are used outside of the ownership of a given organization. So an example of that would be WhatsApp. It's not typical that WhatsApp as a device for communicating is something that's advocated by corporates. It's very typical that WhatsApp as an application that's sat on your iPhone is, is, is prevalent in, in almost everybody. You know, the, the ability because I've been working with Chris in this scenario for me to communicate, you know, information, perhaps of a confidential nature via WhatsApp is more prevalent now than it was before, because, you know, prior to that, we were in the same office, we'd gone through that perimeter, we were, you know, subconsciously aware of the hooded hacker. Um, and, you know, we didn't do that, we used the corporate devices. Um, so, so, so that that's the increase in shadow IT, and the lack of soft cues, in essence, has resulted in a situation where, you know, your distributed workers are significantly more vulnerable than the office-based workers. In fact, there was a there was a testing report recently, uh, which surveyed employees that were home-based and have been home-based for a while, and that um, quite alarmingly suggested that fifty percent of workers admitted to adopting risky behaviours at home than they undertook when they were in office. Mark, that was that was that was very interesting, and and gave us some some absolute food for thought, particularly around that. Um... That shadow IT thing that I that I think I now understand better. The external threat, of course, hasn't gone away. Uh, Mark Rodbert, I've read about Russian hackers, for instance, uh, and their potential effect on the 2016 US election. Who are these hackers? You know, what what is it that they're after? So I think the the answer to that is is many and varied, and and different organisations have different objectives. Um, Clearly, some of them are economic, some of them are political. Um, and I, I think that's important to bear in mind when we're thinking about how to, how to combat uh, cybercrime attacks. So the first thing to mention is that the trend is still up and only getting worse. It's predicted that $5.2 trillion is going to be the impact of cybercrime in the next five years. Whilst not all hacking groups are uh, backed by nation states, it, it's important to recognise that areas and, and geographies where there's less regulation, um, there's more likely to be a uh, implicit or explicit link between uh, governments um, and and cybercrime groups. So let's dive into that in a, in a bit more detail. Um, Without wishing to kind of further demonize the Russian state uh, more than it already is being, um, it's important to recognize that um, recent analysis suggests that over two thirds of all the money 
made through ransomware attacks in 2021 went to hackers that hacking groups that were broadly linked with with Russia or highly likely to be affiliated with with Russia but I think that's you know that's fairly well well known um, perhaps what's been a little bit under the radar is is some of the other groups so we thinking in particular of uh, the Double Dragon Group, also known as uh, APT, Advanced Persistent Threat 41, uh, Wicked Panda. And that group is has long been assumed that that's sponsored by the Chinese Communist Party. Some of the techniques and technology that they're using is, is really only available to nation-state organizations. But also, it's worthwhile bearing in mind that the um, the objectives of APT 41 and the groups that they're targeting is completely consistent with the Chinese government's national plans uh, to move into high research and development fields uh, such as um, semiconductors, such as uh, pharmaceuticals and, and other high-tech sectors. And this is part of the Chinese government's Made in China 2025 plan. Uh, which which is a public public document says that um, China wants to be self-sufficient in high tech and uh, the intellectual property that goes along with that by 2025. And that is why we see uh, attacks uh, like the attack on EasyJet, which was uh, strongly linked with um, uh, Double Dragon, uh, where... Um, people's credentials were stolen, but there seemed to be no, and, and credit card details, but there seemed to be no economic uh, theft associated with that. Um, so that's very consistent with a uh, with a Chinese attack, where what people are looking for is is being able to compromise uh, the organisations that that those people are, are are linked with. So they're not interested in stealing. Five thousand pounds on your credit card. They are interested in the companies that you work for. Similarly um, and differently, we've got um, groups in North Korea. Um, one of the uh, best, well-known well ones of those is the Lazarus Group, um, and and they have a completely different set of objectives. So so North Korea sees uh, crypto hacking and and illicit cyber activities as a source of foreign currency uh, that, that supports their um, fragile economy. So, so they, they're very much targeting banks and, and uh, other financial institutions uh, um, to defraud them. Uh, we can look at um, uh, Iran is also a, a country that's associated with cybercrime. Um, and, um, and that's really because um, Iran has been in an almost constant state of war since 1979 and um, doesn't really have the resources to uh, prosecute a traditional war against um, the West and, and local enemies. Um, it, it sees cybercrime as an uh, asymmetric form of warfare. Um, so it allows uh, the Iranian uh, uh, government to punch above its weight internationally. So, Mark, that, that's very interesting. The, 
the assumption I think um, amongst most people is that the most immediate threat to them individually is that of a financial impact on their own credit card. Uh, and what you're saying uh, in talking about these uh, these organisations that are most likely backed by nation states is it implies that it's a much uh, deeper and uh, more concerning and uh, holistic threat than you know, one might assume if, if you're just considering your own personal circumstances. I think you're absolutely right. Before we start demonising uh, other nation states, it's important to remember that one of the largest prosecutors of, of this kind of cyber offensive is, is, is NATO in America. Um, that this is a conflict that companies are caught in the middle of it. Um, and as a result, you should think about some of the organisations that are uh, prosecuting cybercrime. They're extremely well-funded. They're very good at their job. Uh, they're large organisations and they have very well-defined objectives. You know, the assumption that we're dealing with a few um, teenagers in their... Uh, a parent's house um, in the basement late at night is is just untrue. Um, you know, we know who these people are. We know the kind of threats that they're prosecuting. And as I say, they're, they're well-funded and, and very good at their jobs. Thanks, Mark. That's um, very insightful. Um, it strikes me, uh, Mark Rothwell-Brooks, that you know, we've spoken about some of the context of the the change in, in how we operate and some of the, the threats that we face as, as individuals and obviously as organisations specifically here. I can't help but feel that a technology solution is only part of how we might um, protect ourselves uh, both individually and, and as corporations against these types of threat. It feels to me like what we really need to be doing is, is addressing something that, that speaks to the whole of an organization as an entity in practical terms how how do you think that we should be going about doing that yeah great question yeah you you're right i mean tools and processes will, will get you so far but i mean it, the the honest answer to that is is organizational transformation you know root and branch organizational transformation that's what's required a lot can be done about enforcing the soft cues which are no longer available to the employee because they're working from home you know you can increase the awareness of employees and their line management about, you know, the the, the advantages of, of of adopting certain policies or not adopting other other policies. That 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 is that is useful and that's part of what is required. But like we used to say when when we're doing audits, you know, when you don't know what to do, you just say more training. So you know, more training and reinforcing those soft cues is just not enough for the reasons that you know. Mark Rudbert has said, you know, this is not your hooded hacker in a basement. These are organized endeavors, well-funded organized endeavors with very clear objectives. So the, the question of organizational change and, and what organizations should do to address this issue is a crucially important one, Chris. You're right in so much that for this to be addressed appropriately, you do need organizational change as a holistic as opposed to you know the point solutions that have in the past addresses and and the current operating model that addresses this authorization issue relies currently on those soft cues which we talked about before which one could argue don't really address the issue when we were all in offices never mind when we're all working from home 
but it relies on the soft cues and it relies on a process of reauthorization that's just frankly not fit for purpose, as you know, we've mentioned before. It's done annually or quarterly. It's not done to the degree of diligence that's required. It's a bit of an afterthought. We advocate that an organization addresses that operating model in iterations and, and looks at the various processes within an organization which would lend itself to getting yourself in the situation of having um, those outliers and, and, and employees finding themselves access with two applications that they don't necessarily need for the role. And you pick those processes off one by one and iteratively change those processes. And you know, each time you change a process, you improve your position. Once you've got the analytics in front of you to be able to make informed decisions on these, on these things, and it's, it's all about the process and the operating model iterations that will make the biggest difference and move the needle the furthest. And I think that we're going to get into that in more detail in subsequent podcasts. Mark Russell-Brooks, thanks for, for your comments there on, uh, on organisational change. And thank you to, to, to both you and to Mark Robert for uh, joining us today on, on this particular podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, where we'll be delving further into why organisations need to improve the approaches they're taking to protect themselves from this uh, ever-growing and existential threat.